While you're turning to Romans chapter 1, just to kind of give you a little direction as to where we're headed, having been in John for just over a year, I'm going to do Romans 1 today, then we'll be three sermons in uh, officer land, talk about officers, then a couple of miscellaneous things through the end of the year. After that, I'm going to go to Joel, eight sermons in Joel, I know, then... 13 sermons, I think, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So we're going to finish out the, uh, the John writing there, not touching Revelation. And then we're going to be in Exodus for about a year and a half. So that's your sermon series taking you through the middle-ish of 2019. Um, that's where we are headed. But today, the Word of God on my own, I am. Okay, Word of God, Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let us pray again. Our God, we ask that you would give life and light to your word. We know that you will use it. May you use it now. In Jesus' name, amen. This Tuesday, I guess, if I have my dates right, marks 500 years of the Reformation. And I've been prepping the congregation here in Sunday school for what seems like months in our 500-year Sunday school series. I guess it feels like 500 years. And if you're going to think about the Reformation and kind of think about what happened 500 years ago in Europe, what happened that upset Germany, that upset Switzerland, that upset France and England, that upset the entire Western world, what happened in the Reformation? Well, we've been talking about that. And if you really want to kind of pin it down and start thinking about specific causes... It's interesting, there's probably no singular greater cause of the Reformation than these two verses. In fact, actually, if we wanted to be super specific, we could say the primary cause of the Reformation is Romans 1, verse 17. It's 17 that functions as the burr under the saddle, the bee in the bonnet for Martin Luther and breaks him. In fact, actually, it tells, I guess in so many ways, though not intended now, but the, it tells the, the, the conversion experience, the, the reformation experience of Luther himself. Luther's born in the early, I think, 1480s. Grows up trying to figure out what to do. He recognizes that he needs salvation and doesn't fully understand how to get it. And in college, he really is confronted with that reality as two of his best friends drop dead in the middle of college. 
And in 1505, I think it is, his solution is transformed when for the first time in his life, he sees a Bible. Think about that. I mean, he's, what, 20, 22 years old, I think, at that point, And he sees a Bible for the first time in his life. Never seen one. Again, totally different world. And he begins to throw himself into studying the Bible and learning everything that there is. He sends himself off to a monastery to become a monk, and he becomes the monk of all monks. He studies harder than anybody. He does penance more frequently than anybody. He's more consistent in his Roman Catholic theology than anybody. It's so bad. He goes to confession so regularly that the priests finally have to sit him down and they say, Martin, we love you. You really need to stop doing this unless it's a sin that's worthy of confession. And his response is, brothers, all sin is sin. And they're like, yeah, but you're wasting our time. And he's like, but all sin is sin. And they're like, yeah, we got nothing. So he continues. In fact, actually, even ultimately making a trip to Rome, and as he comes into Rome, he's like, finally, I have arrived in Rome where I will have all of the answers to salvation. And he begins his penance in Rome, climbing the stairs there, and processing his world, And it all kind of comes apart as he's there and as he's listening to a bunch of the Roman Catholic priests talk in between Mass. And they're singing a little ditty. And the little ditty is about how the bread and the wine begin as bread and wine and finish as bread and wine. And it ruins him. As he catches the priests themselves not believing in the Scriptures. And he goes back to Wittenberg, he's sick and he almost dies and he realizes he's got to have a solution and begins to talk to his mentor and his mentor turns him to this verse and it gnaws at him like a a brain worm. It gets into his mind and it chews and chews and chews and ruins everything that he is until he comes to a solution. And the, the reasoning is clear. We see it in the scriptures as it walks us through... The process he thinks through, he's following the scriptures. It begins with Paul's statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul writes the letter of Romans as as an apologetic for when he gets to Rome, why they should receive him as an apostle. This is, in essence, his his reference, his his resume, it's his CV. And man alive, if I could write a reference or a resume like that, wow, right? The most technical theological masterpiece ever written in any language. It is the most sophisticated and beautiful uh, record of biblical theology. It's, It's amazing. And in verse 16, he sets the tone really for the rest of the book saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to hide it from you. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to reject it. This is going to be the message of my life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, he explicitly does not define it yet. But you get the idea that this is the big thing. 
This is the big idea. This is, if you're going to get anything from Paul, the gospel is the thing to get. Okay, that, that's good. That makes sense. And that's important. We get that even today in the American church. Now, granted, I think many in the American church have lost the definition of the gospel, thanks to Francis of Assisi and others that say things like, if uh, preach the gospel all the time and if necessary, use words. That is a lie from the pit of hell because the gospel is words. It's not actions. It is words. What words is it? Well, Paul begins to explain it. He's going to use the rest of the book really to explain it, but he begins here to capture it a bit further. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And you have to look at kind of all of these parts as we walk through. First, it is the power of God. Now that is an important kind of recognition when you start talking about what God's work is in the gospel is that it's He's doing it. It's a work that He is accomplishing. It's a work that is accompanied with divine power. It is something that God is involved in. The gospel is not solely a horizontal experience. This is what America lost and we kind of fell off on in the 19th century as the social gospel took root in Presbyterianism and other places as we began to say, no, look, the gospel is all about human reconciliation. It's all about lateral. It's all about horizontal relationships. And Paul is saying, no, first and foremost, you have to understand the gospel is primarily, it's, it's foremost about not a horizontal relationship, but a vertical one. It's a relationship between God and His people. It is a relationship that is divine and human. But it's not just connecting God and man, but it's connecting God and man in a relationship that is defined as salvation. It's fixing the problem of sin. And this is really where Luther excelled more than most. Luther was attempting to be consistent, but more than anything, he had the courage to admit that he had done bad things. You see, most of us, I would suggest most of us, deal with our sin a bit like mental hospital patients. We kind of acknowledge that it's there and then just choose to ignore it forever. Like, oh yeah, I think I probably did that. And then ignore it. It's the giant elephant in the room that nobody acknowledges. I don't know that I'm a sinner. I mean, I think I am, but I don't, I don't really talk about it. I don't, I don't think about it. I don't let it in affect my emotions. I don't let it affect how I think about myself. I don't let it affect how I think about others. It's knowledge of sin that I partition off in a part of my brain that I keep locked forever. It's like the scary horror movie where you have the one room that's always locked and you don't really find out what's in there, but you know that room is bad. We put our idea of sin in there. We lock the door and we throw away the key. Luther, on the other hand, had to come to terms with the fact that he knew he was a sinner. And he knew he needed salvation and he didn't know how to get it. And it broke him. Like I said, he was a monk among monks. Like I said, his priests were like, brother, you need to cool it, man. Like, calm down. 
Go drink some water or something. I don't know. But like, chill out, brother. You, you, your sin is not that big of a deal. And Luther said, no, because it involves God, it is. My life is shaped around the need for salvation. Interestingly, he never wanted to be a preacher. Originally, he didn't, at least. He didn't want to be a pastor, originally. He didn't want to be a priest. He didn't want to be a monk. The only reason he went into the monastery was so that someone would tell him how to find salvation, and they had no answers. So as he gets his Bible, he begins to read, and here he finds promised in Romans 1, 16, the hope of salvation. God's promise that God will save his people. And that's ultimately what it is. This is the heart of the gospel. It is a promise that God will save you. It's beautiful. It's really kind of in essence no different in the Old Testament as the New. In the Old Testament, what were God's people doing for salvation? They were hoping that God would be faithful to his promise to save them. And what is my only hope for salvation is that God would be faithful to the promise to save me. And this salvation is accompanied with the power of God. It is accomplished by God. It's a work in relationship to God. And it is extended to everyone who believes, Jews first, then Greeks. This salvation is not something to be hoarded, to be tucked away. I keep it in my jacket pocket, but you can't have it. It's just for me. No, instead it's to be shared freely because there's more than enough to go around. Share it with your neighbor, share it with your family, share it with your friend, because all people have the promise. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every state, anybody, anyone can know the Lord. Now certainly it's acknowledging here Paul is recognizing the timeline of God's work. The timeline that it begins with the Jew, we have the entire Old Testament where salvation is connected to a nation state. But now the New Testament where it's extended to Greeks as well. Which for most of us in here, excepting a handful, that's good news. Most of us in here, excepting a handful, would not qualify as Jews. And so the Greeks and the Gentiles, that's our story. That's us coming to know the Lord. This gospel, Paul continues, is in verse 17, we find out in it is the righteousness of God revealed. And this is where Luther, first and foremost, fell apart. He speaks about prior to his conversion, prior to understanding what we would know as the Reformed faith, he hated that term, the righteousness of God. He hated it and indirectly hated God for it. Because Luther emotionally, in his soul, understood that the righteousness of God is perfection. Now for some of us, we don't genuinely understand the concept of perfection very well. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm one of those people, I'm a big picture thinker. I'm like, really big picture thinker. And so like 80%, that's good enough. That's, that's a win. It's, it's close. It's, it's a majority. We made it. It's, it's, good. it's good enough. It's, it's the big picture. It's a win. 
I'm not a person who lives in the details Luther is in this regard and begins to see the gnawing problem of God's righteousness is that any sin and every sin becomes judged. This is the point that James made that we read previously, that any sin is perfectly damning for any person. That any sin and every sin is a violation against the perfection of God and His righteousness will demand judgment. And that's that part that, again, I think a lot of times we emotionally, certainly those of us that have been in the church a long time, we kind of ignore and partition off and put away and just kind of ignore that every sin, every sin demands payment. And you think through Luther and you read his writings and him despairing over the things he'd done 20 years previous as a young child. Because those young sins would send him to hell. Because any sin deserves God's judgment. Again, we struggle with this, I would say, in evangelicalism. We forget the, the, the extent of perfection, that there are no loopholes. That there are no mulligans. There are no do-overs. There are no, well, I mean, it's a sin, but it's socially kind of, so we'll just ignore it. It's, it's fine. We'll just move on. No, Luther recognized and hated it for it that God's righteousness is perfection. And he knew there was no way for him to attain that. And all it would do was damn him. All it would do was damn him. And for him, the gospel becomes a bitter thing because he misunderstands that all it functions as is this kind of carrot dangling out in front of him, the promise of salvation, but with no way to fix the wrath of God. Until you get to the second half of the verse. This is what his mentor, his older gentleman, tells him to meditate on, that the righteousness of God is revealed. It's revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther's big kind of light bulb moment is coming as he's trying to reconcile this passage. What do I do with the salvation of God? The forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation of God and man. What do I do with that and my sin? How do I get me and salvation in the same sentence? Because brothers and sisters, Rome had an answer. The monks had an answer and they were very clear in telling Luther what it was, was that if your good deeds were good enough, now it was much more sophisticated and said in a far more confusing fashion and inconsistent, really inconsistent. But the answer held forth was, look, if you're a good enough person, salvation belongs to you. 
And my goodness, is that not America? If we were to go to the grocery store right now and ask a person what happens to them when they die, everybody's going to say what? Either I don't know, which would be wonderfully honest. I, I love that answer. I, let me tell you, I know exactly what happened. But more likely, they're going to say, I'm going to go to heaven. And then when you follow up the question, why? They're going to say, well, I'm not really that bad off. And if you were to ask them right now, it would be a wonderfully great irony, because then you could follow it up and say, well, why are you not in church then? (laughs) Certainly, they're better than you, right? The problem is that Luther understood what the American culture is yet to kind of fully wrestle through in the American churches. This idea that any sin is damning, and there is no way perfection is possible. Again, anytime you want to think about your level of perfection and how good of a person you are, sit down and and ask your spouse 10 ways that you regularly hurt their feelings. I promise you'll have have no issue thinking you're a good person. You might need marriage counseling after that, but you'll have no issue thinking that you're a good person. Those of you that are unmarried, ask your roommates or your parents. Ooh, the parents one, that might sting a little, right? We live in such wonderful ignorance, don't we? Willful ignorance. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, one I've, uh, author I love, he called that the key to good literature on the reader's part was a willing suspension of disbelief. You had to intentionally choose to stop believing in physics and you had to have imagination and imagination is a willful thing and that's part of why adults stop enjoying stories quite as much as children is because they get too tired to suspend their disbelief and you hear well that's not possible obviously that's fake i know it's literature that's the whole point The crazy thing is the amount of energy that we're willing to put into the willing suspension of disbelief that we are sinners how much energy we spend trying to convince ourselves we're actually good people. In the world in which Luther lived in, the solution was that if you are a good enough person, what God does is He takes righteousness and He infuses it into you and He makes you good enough to get salvation. And Luther was just saying, guys, that's just not an answer. It's just not an answer. It's not okay. And as he's stewing on this, the Word of God gnaws a hole in his head and in his heart, and it comes to him through the Holy Spirit. Guys, what's the answer? The righteous will live not by works, not by the law, not by the merit that they can attain. The righteous will live by what? By faith and faith alone. He begins to understand what you've already confessed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that justification, the righteousness of God, is it's satisfied by God's work given to you. He begins to understand that salvation, the gospel is a promise, an explanation of a legal preceding. Whereas God's people are guilty before Him. And honestly, again, your, your parents, your, your spouse, your roommates, your siblings, they know that you're a sinner, even if you don't believe it. And God knows it even more because he sees the heart. 
And so you stand before him in this idea of salvation, guilty in his presence. And all of the things that you've done that you think are good further damn you in his sight. And in the midst of that hopelessness, in the midst of that condemnation, in the midst of that guilt, Romans 5.8, Paul's going to explain in just a minute, while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. Jesus goes to the cross, and on the cross he takes all of the evil that you have done, all of the guilt that you deserve, all of the damnation that belongs to you, and all of the wrath that you would receive, and he takes it on to himself. That's why the cross is so brutally difficult for Jesus. It's not just that crucifixion is the worst way to die that I can think of. It's actually that he's enduring the totality of God's wrath on the cross. All of the wrath that all of us would ever deserve. Not just wrath that he might deserve. He doesn't deserve any. All of us, all of our wrath. On the cross, he undergoes it. He satisfies God's wrath in its entirety. And then in salvation, in the gospel, that payment for wrath can become yours. That righteousness on the cross can become yours. That hope of a life to come can become yours. And it can only be gained by one way. The free gift of Jesus. You don't earn it. The righteous live by faith. And again, you think about why is faith the the mechanism? What is faith in this sense, this biblical faith? It's hoping that God would be faithful to his promise. How do you get salvation? (laughs) I love it. What is the mechanism whereby we get salvation? It's trusting in God's promise. And interestingly, the Confession 11, chapter 1 that you just recited, that faith itself is a gift from the Lord himself. He gives you that faith so that you would trust in the work that he is doing. This is the point that breaks Luther apart. It breaks him in half as he begins to understand. Look, I've never been good enough to uh, to deserve salvation. I've never been able to earn it. I've, I've never been that righteous person. And he knew that. But now he understands that's the point. That while I am unrighteous, Jesus was. And the heart of the gospel is that God's promises are so powerful that all I have to do is by his own ability, trust in him. The Spirit working within me, increasing my faith and giving me faith. It's in that that I trust in Christ and I can have forgiveness and live anew. It's why Luther can follow Paul's pattern here, not being ashamed of the gospel and go toe to toe with the Roman Catholic Church. Think about the transition this man has. 1505, he gets his first copy of the Bible that he's ever seen in his life. It's not even his. He's studying someone else's. 1505, 12 years later, 95 theses on the front door of the Wittenberg Church, uh, All Hallows' Eve, uh, October 31st. And then what? A handful of years later, he's actually excommunicated by Rome and is going toe-to-toe with the most powerful nation, the most powerful denomination that the world has ever seen up to this point. Here I stand, I can stand nowhere else. I can t- no other stand than this. I will stand on the gospel. And Rome, you've got it wrong. 
As he watches his peers and his friends and his colleagues be murdered for their faith. As he's being chased all across Germany for his faith. As he's locked in Marburg Castle for a year and a half for his faith. It's upon this gospel and this gospel alone. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Very quickly, what do we do with this? Well, one... I would say it's unbearably important that we, as Reformed Christians following in the pattern of Luther, Paul, and all the saints who have gone before, that we work particularly hard to make sure we do not lose the doctrine of sin. You see, part of what makes Luther this great spark plug for the Reformation is because he understood the doctrine of sin better than anybody else first. You realize that's what makes Luther special. It's not just that he gets justification. It's that he understood sin well enough to need justification. If you think your salvation is a boring activity, odds are high your problem is not understanding justification. It's it's understanding sin. And you think about this. Think about your personal experience. Those of you that were converted later in life, how marvelous was your conversion? It was staggering, wasn't it? I mean, it was marvelous. You, it was just, it was jaw dropping. You loved to tell. It was fantastic. Why? Because you knew what you were, and you know what you are. For those of us that have grown up in the church, our salvation sometimes is a little bit less spectacular. Because by God's mercy, and I am so thankful for this, I never got to see what I was. <clears throat> I don't know the years of the locust. I don't know what it's like to live apart from Christ. I don't know what it's like for me to live unchecked. And oh, I am so thankful for that. But it is imperative that we do not lose the doctrine of sin. Even in an American church climate where it is fading by the wayside. Our biggest pastors in America, and I use air quotes because I'm sarcastic there, have already said, they've declared, they refuse to talk about sin. Well, I would say you refuse to talk about salvation then. Secondly is uh, that we don't have this sort of creep into our theology where we begin in understanding that God has done it and then slowly begin to say, but I'm a participant. I did it. I'm a contributor. I'm a great part of the team. You see, that's what happened in Galatians The whole book of Galatians is Paul blasting the church for that very thing. You started so well. You understood God had done this. And then now you're slowly letting it creep in to say, I was a participant too. Oh, you foolish Galatians. Do you think that you will be able to be participant by works of the law? That's what we read today. (coughs) 
And then thirdly, I would say the great danger of reducing the gospel to fire insurance. Many of us, having grown up in the South or other parts of the country, uh, would have interacted with a brand of salvation, a brand of evangelicalism that says, what is the salvation? The the, the definition of salvation is that if you know God, you don't go to hell. They're not wrong. But what a small understanding. What is the doctrine of salvation? It's not just that you don't go to hell. How do, you go to, how do you not go to hell? You have salvation in Christ, that the righteous one would become your righteousness and he would give it to you. It's not just that you don't go to hell. It's not just fire insurance. It's a much bigger, a much greater, a much more full thing than that. And then lastly... That we would endeavor as God's people to never grow ashamed of this. Because the reality of the world is, and we did this in Sunday school today, you got to see, right, the massive chart of Presbyterianism and how the drift is always to the left. It's always to being liberal. Not politically. I'm not talking Republicans or Democrats. I'm talking theologically. And what does theological liberalism at its core deny? It denies the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes by faith. It denies that. It it substitutes something instead of this faith, this justification by Christ. It substitutes, uh, the social gospel substitutes good works to your neighbor. Other things have to be put in place because we refuse to deal with sin. And a Savior that was murdered on our behalf. May it be that we as God's people now would labor for a second reformation on these shores. And may it be that this reformation lives and dies on these verses too. That the righteous shall live by faith. Not their righteousness, but their faith in another's. Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. May we we be found faithful on the day of the second coming. Faithful to Christ. Faithful to your gospel. Faithful to your salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.